Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray, Lord, you will continue to deal with our hearts. We thank you for your graciousness over us as a church, Lord. All that you've done, you're doing. Lord, that we continue to be good stewards of all that you entrust us with. And so, Lord, um, teach us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, why don't you turn to the Gospel of Luke, please. The message is entitled Perspective on Wealth and Possessions. Money is amoral, as you know. It's not the money that's bad. It's the love of money. Uh, in fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10 that um, it's the root of all evil, uh, which some have strayed from the faith. So he accuses Christians of this sin in their greediness and piercing themselves through with many sorrows. So money is needed. You need to buy a car, your clothes, and this and that. That's not wrong in itself. It's the love of money that corrupts things. And when men live for money, they become... Uh, slaves to that passion and it destroys them as well as those around them and all of us know examples of that um, so that that is the main problem rather than allowing money to serve as an instrument by which um, we can use it for the good of ourselves and others um, we look around the world in, in, in America and we see extremes of wealth and poverty uh, on, on many levels different things but a mistake we make often is we think that God is, um, the Bible teaches that all of us would be equal in this aspect of it. We're living in a fallen world. It's an ideal thing. It's not what it's talking about. And we'll point some of this stuff out. Um, but, you know, greed comes in many different ways. People sacrifice their innocence, their, their purity, or, or their ethics by, by money. Um, it happens in this fallen world. People are, are, are pulled and attracted by the power and by what they can possess. And so what we want to do is look at some of the words that appear directly and indirectly in relationship to money and wealth here by Luke and to see how they are affirmed in the parabolic teaching because Luke gives us many parables that are not found anywhere else and he lines them up with these themes. And so we want to look at Luke's uh, teaching here on wealth and possessions by three contrasts that he gives to us by the concepts and themes that appear in his gospel. Let me give you the three contrasts. First, Luke reveals a contrast of social inner attitudes of persons by the words lowly and mighty. It begins with an attitude. Secondly, Luke reveals a contrast between economic positions of persons by the words poor and rich. And third, he'll finish up by revealing the contrast between unspirituality and true spirituality by the words treasure Covetous in contrast to lend and give. And, and no one does this but Luke. The others do not. And so let's begin here with the first. Luke reveals the contrast of social inner attitudes of persons by the words lowly and mighty. We uh, saw it in the first chapter, in chapter 1, verse 48, Mary in her song called the Magnificent, as she magnifies God the Savior for regarding her lowliest state by choosing her to be the mother of the Christ child. It says, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. The word lowly means um, reduction, depression of mind, and the idea is that of humility here in chapter 1, verse 48. She was a humble young woman. Um, the word is used of the humiliation of Jesus, our physical body that will be changed, and the humbling of the rich in Acts 8.33 
Philippians 3.21 and James 1.10. So the context will show you how it's used, uh, whether it's humility or abasing. Now the word lowly in a different form can also mean small, base, or insignificant. In fact, here in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 52, it says, For he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. The contrast of the lowly and mighty are inseparable and emphatic in this whole uh, section. We've already pointed out in 48, he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. In 51, he scattered the proud. Those are the mighty. 52, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And in 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has set away empty. In contrast, because they depend on themselves and not upon God. Not because God hates rich people, as we'll see. Now, God would choose the lowly, the insignificant, weak and poor to reveal his salvation and exalt them, but abase the proudful, the mighty and the rich who have exalted themselves among men. Because they reject God. And that's the whole thing. Now, this principle is repeated both in figurative language and literal language throughout the Gospel of Luke and in other Gospels also. In chapter 3 of Luke, verse 5, it says, Let every, every valley uh, shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. It's talking about a literal practice they did to welcome the emperor, the king, as they would come in on the roads that were bad, they would patch them up. But it's also, secondly, speaking about the exalted people being brought low. So it's in figurative language that it's talking about. It's twofold. Um, in chapter 14, verse 11, <clears throat> The principle is for whoever exalts himself will be humble and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we'll see this repeated throughout the parables. Um, we even understand this in the secular world, at least um, much so when we where there was an ethic and a morality in the United States. But even now, when it's an amoral society, we still see this. Proud people get humble. They eat crow some once in a while. And, and, and people that are obeyed sometimes are exalted. Though it's getting more difficult for that to happen. Now... Um, in chapter 18 of Luke, verse 14, uh, it says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, and who humbles himself will be exalted. There's that principle again. The context of this, and we'll get a little more in detail, is the publican and the Pharisee praying. Okay? So that principle is repeated. Now, this contrast is equally found now. In the parabolic teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, we'll begin here in chapter 7, uh, verse um, 36 to 50. Um, Simon the Pharisee, we did it in depth, um, was abased by Jesus. Uh, but the sinful woman, the prostitute, was exalted to a daughter of Abraham. Um, Simon believed that he was righteous. He didn't need forgiveness. He, he exalted himself. The woman recognized she was a sinner. And therefore, she was forgiven much, so she loved much. You have the contrast there, continually. Now, in chapter 14, verse 7 through 11, Jesus points out to the Pharisees in another parable of the proud and the mighty that were invited to a wedding feast, that they should choose not the best or the chief seats, but, uh, but rather the, the lower seats, not thinking themselves more highly than they ought. 
in for it's much better to be asked from a higher position or, or from a lower position to be come up higher than to be sitting in the highest position and then all of a sudden you you're asked to be humble before everybody. Now, the positioning of tables in those days, let's just say this table was here four sides. Every side, the middle one, is the, is the chief seat. So if this was the head of the table, this would be number one, this would be number two, this is three, this is four. Okay? In the chief form. And then subsequently in the other one. So this is number one on the chief side. Then the right hand would be the second. And then the third would be over here the left side. And then so on and so forth, same thing. And they understood this. So Jesus says, don't go right to the head one. Everybody's going to go for the middle ones, and one's going to go for the top middle. He says, go for the lowest one. So they're asking you, you're brought up front, you're exalted, and you're not humble. And that's the picture that he's given here. Now, Jesus spoke a parable of some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, despising others. And we find this in Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is the two men that we just inferred to. The Pharisee and the tax collector in verse 10. The Pharisee prayed with himself, exalting himself. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioner, unjust, adulterer, even as this tax collector probably pointing to him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He prayed with himself. Didn't pray to God. The tax collector pleading with God for mercy. The tax collector standing far off. Would not even as much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Propitiate me. So the punchline is in verse 14. He gives the verdict. Jesus, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than others than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be exalted, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. So there again the principle, okay? And this is over and over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. Um, it has been said by one, quote, It's a shame that when success turns a person's head, it doesn't also wring his neck just a little. <laughs> it doesn't take much to puff us up or to think that we're the greatest thing since ice cream. It, we're, we're fallen people. Um, the deception with self-righteousness is that it's a person making themselves the standard. Um, it's a false measure. The true measure is God. Are you ready for it? Perfection. Sinlessness. Any takers? No one can meet it. The human measure is based on the evil or the sin a person does or does not commit. And the problem with a self-righteous attitude is that um, our sins always look worse on others than ourselves. You see, I can understand why God forgave me for you fill in the blank. But you, you dog, how could you? You see, I have no problem with God forgiving me for all my sins. My problem is, why did he forgive you? We're bad to the bone. Welcome to the human race. That's what you have to fight every day of your life as a Christian. Your old man. Your old self-righteousness. Your evil heart. The problem is the heart then. God registered this from the beginning, even before the first judgment. Genesis 6, 5, he says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thought of the heart of man was evil. 
Only evil continually. Nothing has changed. You want to start with our leaders? <laughs> you want me to consider you? Everybody's included. Keep your hearts with all diligence, for out of it springs forth the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 says, you got to guard your heart with the word of God, the spirit of God. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 11.2, what a contrast. The desire to be noticed, to be exalted and be our number one is innate in all of us. Uh, it's part of the fall of nature. People um, love to drop names. Um, who they know. Uh, who they spend time with. And it's very nonchalant or whatever. Uh, or sometimes it's very obvious. They uh, associate their importance to those they have named. And they um, believe they are very important and elite people. And therefore they associate themselves with this eliteness and importance. It's part of our makeup. People love to flash their classiness of clothes or cars they drive or where they live. Now, there's nothing wrong with the clothes, the car, or the place you live. It's what you, how you view that, the perspective, and, and what you do with it and what it does to you. Um, they're always telling you about their, um, <clears throat> their new toys or their money ventures. And, uh, and, and you don't even have to be real wealthy. I mean, some people just, you know. They want you to think they're rich. <laughs> um, and yet there are rich people that are truly humble. They are truly um, in love with the Lord, but they are rare. Um, because um, people are so caught up by money, the, uh, the power and the influence it brings. People love to be seen and identify with people of uh, public recognition so often. Um, be it to sit on social platforms or... Um, you know, prominent people people bring benefit to you, connections and different things. Um, you know, things you say, well, yeah, I flew on his private plane last week. He invited me over to his mansion, to his ranch, to his yacht. You fill in the blank. Um, it's all there. Today, um, the social media, uh, those of you who are young and you, uh, you, you cyberspace through it, everything. It's one of the biggest lies. Everybody's living the dream. You present yourself exactly the way you want. It's a lie. These dating scenes. Are you kidding me? You look at the picture, you go, whoa. You look at the person, you go, eh, eh, eh. I mean, it's, it's a big lie, the social media. There's some good in it, but let me tell you, we're bad to the bone. Paul put it this way in Romans 12, 16. Um, be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. That's the natural thing, fallen. We have to work at it. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6. Yes, all of you. Be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So, as Christians, we understand we rest in God, we trust in God, and, and all of that comes through God's hand. In the world, we competed to be on top, and we had to fight to stay on top, and then we, we told people we're on top, and we're really on the bottom. I mean, it was a weird world, you know what I mean? 
And if you're not careful as a Christian, you'll get sucked back into those things. Because you still have a sin nature. You can't escape this. Sometimes we deal with Christians like, oh, certain things can't happen to us. You can't, what are you, smoking crack or what? What world are you living in? Obama's world? world? What? Come on. Luke reveals a contrast of social inner of persons by the words lowly and mighty more than any of the other gospels. Very, very clear. The second contrast he gives us is that he reveals the contrast between the economic positions of persons by the words poor and the word rich. The word um, for poor is an adjective meaning um, destitute or a mendicant, a beggar, one who is poverty of uh, funds. This includes wealth, influence, and position and honor before men, of course, because this is the only place that, that wealth has any influence. The streets of uh, heaven are gold. God's not bragging about it. It's just building material. <laughs> That's all it is. Uh, the word appears uh, the most in Luke ten times. And it always refers to finances. Poverty of finances. Nine of the ten times comes straight from the, word, from the mouth of our Lord. The only time that it doesn't is when Zacchaeus declares that he gives half of his goods to the poor. In Luke 19, 18. Whenever a Jew gives half of his things to the poor, he's got to be saved. Okay? Um, just the way it is. Now, in this passage, our Lord proclaimed the f- fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about coming to preach the gospel to the poor and that the kingdom belonged to the poor. You can't miss this in Luke. This is the message that Jesus sent to John when he says, are you the one or we look for another? And he sent back to John, he says, tell him, boom, boom, boom. But one of the key things he says, and tell him that the gospel is preached to the poor. Luke 7, 22. Jesus told the Pharisees to invite the poor to dinner. Not those who could invite you back and pay you back, friends and relatives, in Luke 14, 12 through 14. Now, nothing wrong with inviting your friends and your loved ones and the ones you want to. But if that's the only thing you do as a Christian and you never reach out to help others, then something is definitely wrong. We should be a little different than we were before. Jesus illustrated the parable of the unjust steward who prepared for his future on earth. By the parable of the rich man and Lazarus the beggar in chapter 16. Now, the unjust steward was not commended by Jesus. He was commended by his master for his shrewdness to prepare. Jesus commended him for being wise as a child of the world. And he says the children of darkness or of the world are wiser than the children of light. They make provisions for themselves here, and the children of light are not making provisions for the real riches in heaven. So don't blame Jesus of commending the evil. The master commended the shrewdness. Jesus commended the proper investment in heaven, not earth. Okay? So you have to study the parable. Now, the rich young ruler walked away sorrowful because Jesus told him to go sell all that he had and give it to the poor in Luke 18, 22 through 24. But the other gospels tell us Jesus loved him. So he didn't hate him because he was rich. He just, the rich man loved his treasure more than 
Jesus and the offer he gave him to be saved. Jesus said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God in verse 24 regarding this rich man. Doesn't mean rich man can't be saved. He'll touch on a little bit more. It means it's harder for them because they trust their riches. Nowhere does Jesus state that every disciple of Christ must leave all possessions, but that a disciple must be willing to forsake them if that's what it comes to and he's called to do. And he told us this in Luke 4, 25 through 33. Christ himself is the greatest example. He left, he became poor, being rich, the creator, and he divested himself of his glory and he didn't have a, uh, anywhere to lay his head. Birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Luke nine fifty eight. He became poor for us. Jesus said the poor widow had put in more money than all the rich people put together in Luke 21, 1 through 4. Because she gave of what it took to live. So when we talk about tithing, by the way, we don't take an offering. We receive an offering from God's people. Okay? And we use the word tithe simply as a substitute for the word offering. You're giving. Okay? Yes, it means 10%. But if you look at the Old Testament, if you add up all that they had to give, it would be 27, 28%. Total. So I'm not interested in a legal 10%. Because someone who makes $50 a week, a tithe would be a tremendous strain. Someone who made $10,000 a week, it would be insignificant. It's interesting, God looks not so much on what we give, though we do. He, he looks upon what we keep. And God doesn't look... At, at how much we give, but why we give and how we give. It's a whole different perspective, ladies and gentlemen. There is a clear implication throughout the gospel of Luke. The poor are more receptive to the gospel in the kingdom of God. The gospel of Luke has been called the gospel to the poor for that reason. Yet this does not mean that all poor will inherit the kingdom of God or be receptive to it automatically. There are some pretty ungodly, blasphemous, poor people. <laughs> okay? Listen to James. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You see, the word rich then stands in contrast to this word poor. Which becomes real illuminating in terms of where the heart of people are at, as we see. And the word for rich, the root comes from something that flows or to fill. It speaks of abundance and of goods. Uh, how much you possess, what you have. Various forms of the word appear in the Gospel of Luke. Um, one of them is for well-to-do, and it appears the most in the Gospel of Luke. And the other is to be rich, and it appears two times in Luke one fifty-three and 12.21. And then there's that for abundant wealth, appearing only one time in Luke 8.14. 
It is in Luke that the topic of riches and the rich occupy the greatest space along with parables regarding the rich more than any other gospel. He focuses, he puts that out continually. Now, Jesus pronounced woes on the rich, as you know, in Luke 6.24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Again, it's not that he hates the rich, it's the rich are trusting in their riches for their position, their influence, and not in God. And they do things and they manipulate and destroy people because of their power, thinking there is no God, but that they are God. That's the problem with money and power. And by the way, don't exclude pastors in the church or Christians. Okay? Jesus pronounces the parable of the rich fool to illustrate warning against covetousness as a man spoke from the crowd, wanting Jesus to be the arbitrator between him and his brother for their inheritance. And so he illustrates that by the parable of the rich fool who laid up treasures for himself on earth, but was poor regarding God in Luke 12, 13 through 21. He had all these barns, turn them down, build some neural ones. Fool, your soul is required tonight. Poor towards God, that's the punchline. A person who sees riches and money simply for self is ignorant of the everlasting riches in heaven. People invest here to get the greatest return. And yet as Christians, we can be poverty and make no spiritual investments in the kingdom of God. Jesus uses the word mammon. An Aramaic noun whose root means that which one trusts. The word is used only by Jesus in the New Testament three times here in Luke, in the parable of the unjust steward, and um, called unrighteous mammon because man has trusted in it for power and security. The only other time it appears is in Matthew 6, 24. The three times it appears in this parable is in Luke 16, 9, 11, and 13. Jesus said this in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Here's the punchline. You cannot serve God and man. You can serve God and have mammon, but you can't serve them both. And mammon and man are used synonymously. <laughs> because they're so intricately tied. Look, puts it this way, this way. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things and they derided Jesus, verse 14. So they understood what Jesus was talking about. He's talking about them. He saw their covetous heart. In fact, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus follows right after this in the same context and is used to illustrate the parable of the unjust steward in 16, 19 through 31. The eternal lostness of the rich man was due to living for and trusting in money instead of God. There's the poverty regarding the gospel. It's not speaking against money or houses or anything. 
but the trust and the soul dependency at the expense of spiritual riches. Now, remember what Jesus said about the rich young ruler, that it is more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God on their own, if not impossible, by the metaphor of a camel going through the eye of a needle in Luke 18, 24 through 25. Now, some commentators you'll read to say, well, the eye of the needle was a small gate in Jerusalem and the, and the camel would have to get on their knees and they'd push him through. The guy was smoking crack when he made that thing. Luke is a physician. The word for needle, there is a surgical needle. That's how difficult it is for rich people who trust in the richest into the kingdom of God. They're not going to get in unless they repent. Now, this does not teach that rich men are excluded from the kingdom again. Only that riches often keep them from the kingdom. In the parable of the sower, wealth choked out the word of God, called deceitful riches in Luke 8, 14. Possessions have a tendency to possess man's top priorities and eliminate the things of God. All of us begin poor. When I got married, I didn't even have a bed to sleep on. I had to order it by the time I got back from my honeymoon. Okay? We had bean bags. That's all I had. Um, but as you move along comes the test. Whether you're going to squeeze Jesus out or you're going to make him part of your life. Time is the test of all things. Jesus said, for what profit is of a man gains his whole, the whole world and loses his soul? Luke 9.25 Of the 10 richest countries, the U.S. is number 7. At least it was this morning. Um, Extreme poverty exists in every one of the 10 nations today, as well as those that follow it. One of the goals of Rick Warren in his peace plan is to resolve the problem of world poverty, the letter C, care for the poor. In fact, he said he eliminated. Well, let me give you Jesus' words, Rick. The poor you have with you always. Now, who am I going to believe? By the way, his peace plan is completely out of context in the gospel. And it's completely in line with the UN for the emerging one world mindset. He's completely an ecumenicalist. He's not biblical. Yet he's called the pastor of America, not my pastor. Absolutely not. The Bible does not teach or command that Christians sell and give all they have to the church. Please be clear about this. Your giving is by will and by desire and by your own volition, not compulsory. The motive is to be agape love. The early church did make that mistake, I believe, as they sold everything in Acts 2, 44 and 45, laid at the apostles' feet so it would be distributed. Let me tell you why. Because the church of Jerusalem went broke, and the Gentiles sent an offering through Paul to help them. It is much better for you to manage your finances and invest it, so that when you get older, no one has to take care of you, and you can help others. Are we clear on that? All right? 
You kill the goose, you have no more golden eggs. You want to give some of those golden eggs away? God bless you. But don't kill the goose. You are responsible for your finances. So anybody who tells you to sell everything, give it to the church or the pastor, walk out. I'm not speaking against tithing. We'll get to that. Giving to God. That's one of our greatest privileges. The Bible does not teach or command wealth distribution as Obama teaches the Bible teaches. He uses the Bible so selectively. Um, nowhere in the scriptures the Bible teach that there is to be economic equality. But that there is to be compassion and equal opportunity and mercy. We live in a fallen world. It's never going to be. Jesus said you have the poor with you always. Okay? In fact... Nowhere in the scriptures does the Bible teach that a man has the right to take or demand from you what is rightfully yours. That's stealing, even if it's through legislation. Going from commander-in-chief to commander-in-thief. Listen to Proverbs twenty-two sixteen. He who oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. Do a study. See how much money Obama had before he um, came into office and see how much money he has right now. Wealth distribution is great as long as your money and he's the collector. And the rest of the politicians. They're the elite, see? We're just the peons. Wow. Well, let's move on. The Bible does not teach that the lazy people are entitled. And they're not to be supported financially. Listen. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9, Paul says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor do we eat anybody's bread free of charge, but work with uh, labor, toil and night and day with their hands, that we might not be burdened to any of you, but because we do not have, not because we don't have authority, but we make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So Paul worked. And Paul understood that for him it wasn't right. God didn't want him to do that. He wanted to work. And he showed the example and he provided for others that came with him. And then Paul taught the personal work ethic in um, the same book, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. As he says, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now we're not talking about a person who is laid up, had an accident, or you want to help somebody that's in bad time. We're talking about somebody who can work and doesn't want to work. Entitled, like today's generation. Okay, For we hear that there are some among you, walking among you, disorderly manner, not working at all, but as busybodies. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. Paul taught compassion and benevolence on the very next verse, because he knew the extremes. He says, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing well. So mark those who feel entitled, don't give them, they have to work or don't feed them. But remember, there are people who need some help, so don't get callous, okay? Balance. Paul taught to mark those who attempt to take advantage of the believer also. Listen carefully. 
Second Thessalonians 3.14. He says, and if anyone does not obey our words of this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. There are always going to be people that are going to drop guilt trips and try to push their, you know, well, you have this, you have that, or, you know, you, or, there's some family members, you know, family members, because you're the one that does work hard, this and that, or you kind of did, it's your responsibility to help me. The Bible says help family at home. Yeah, the Bible says work too, sucker. <laughs> I want to be compassionate. I want to be sensitive. But I'm not a doormat. I'm going to serve and I'll serve you. But when you try to use the scriptures against me because you're lazy and you're evil. I don't think so. At all. The Bible does not teach that every child of God should be wealthy. Contrary to all the positive confession heretics of Copeland, Price and Hagen and company. The believer is not to despise the economic level of poverty. Sometimes poverty is what drives people to God, to trust Him. Once the wealth and the objects of value are removed. Riches and wealth bring an entire different set of difficulties and troubles. You say, well, at least I'd like to have a shot at it. No, we have no idea. When you have hundreds of thousands and millions and billions of dollars. Man, the doors that are open to you, the things, the troubles that you get yourself into, we have no idea about. We can imagine because we're evil enough. But uh, listen to um, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 11. It says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we should, shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptations and snares, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith, that's Christians, in their greediness, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, don't be like those Christians Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. First Timothy 6, 6-11. So, don't exclude yourself. Luke reveals the contrast between economic positions of persons by the word poor and rich. Very, very clear. The third contrast Luke reveals is... Between unspirituality and true spirituality by the words treasure, covetous, in contrast to level or lending or lend, either one, and give. There are two forms of the word for treasure. The first word is a noun, which means to deposit or to place in storage, and it appears five times in Luke. The first one is in 645 for the good or evil treasure in the heart of man. The second is in 1233 for the believer's treasure in heaven. The third in 1234 for man's motivation for life where his treasure is, there will his heart be also. And the fourth for the rich young ruler having treasure in heaven if he would have 
taking Jesus' invitation in Luke 18, 22. Now, the second word is a verb. And it means to keep, hoard, lay up, especially regarding valuables. And it's found only one time in Luke, a total of seven in the New Testament. The one in Luke is found in 1221. In the parable of the rich fool, this is the phrase, lays up treasures. He hoards it. It's just there. Then there's the word covetous, which has the idea of having more. Wanting more with reference to power and property. Um, in Luke twelve fifteen, Jesus warned his disciples to beware of the sin of covetousness of the Pharisees, as you know. This was um, their, one of their chief sins. One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses, as it says there in verse 15. And Jesus then illustrated it by the parable of the rich fool in Luke twelve fifteen. Then 16 and 21. And so we see this in Luke that sometimes he gives a parable and then he illustrates the parable by another parable. And remember, parables have one punchline. They compare or they contrast. And some of them you have to be pay real close attention lest you give it the wrong uh, interpretation of a contrast when it should be a comparison and you destroy the whole intention of it. And we already know that in a few of them. We'll get to some more. Now, Jesus desires believers to live content, trusting and depending on Jesus Christ. Uh, he already did it when he taught them how to pray in Luke eleven three. 3. Um, give us our daily bread, depending on God, being grateful to him. And he illustrated by the birds of the air and the lilies of the field in Luke twelve twenty two through 34. How the birds don't go out and store up and the lilies are not... Uh, toiling or, or straining at being what they are. And he makes that application to us. That doesn't mean that we're not to work. We're not to endeavor to be good stewards. It just means that we're to look to God and trust God. And not in these things down here. That God will be faithful. Uh, the punchline is in 34. For where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. And so that's always a danger that we have to be careful about. Now. The obvious contrast of hoarding and covetousness is the concept of giving and lending, which Luke implies to be the principle of the kingdom and the believer. The phrase to give, didomai, in the New Testament depicts a gift. It appears 413 times in the New Testament. 59 of those are found in the Gospel of Luke, one-eighth of the mention. The emphasis being that one day all will give an account of their gifts, their abilities, their resources by the parable of the ten minas in chapter 19, 11 through 27. I will give an account, you will give an account for everything God gave you. Your ability, your talents, your gifts, your finances. All of us will. Each will be rewarded according to the gain of that minna, as that parable teaches. One was ten, the other one five. 
The third one was so fearful because he said his master was an austere man, so he buried it. Listen to the words of Jesus in verse 22 and 26. Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant, for I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Responsibility. Everything is regarding the kingdom. I'm a Christian now. And God will hold me accountable for that. Luke gives great emphasis to contentment that is free from covetousness or passion of possessions. It doesn't mean that we don't have that inclination. It means that we have to fight and resist that inclination. John the Baptist said, if you have two tunics, give one in Luke 3. 11, he's speaking to the common people. Now, everything that you read in the scripture, you have to look in context and the whole counsel of God. If you give whatever you're asked, pretty soon you're not going to have anything. And because people are greedy and entitled, they will do that. So he wants you to use a little noodle between your shoulders so you balance it with common sense, okay? The tax collectors were not to collect more taxes. And the soldiers were not to bully people and extract money in Luke 3, 12 through 14. Those two groups had the most power to abuse their position. So those who are in position of power and influence have the greatest to abuse and to manipulate people. Those of legal authority, those of public authority, those as pastors, those of position of, of influence. Greater responsibility. John said to those who had that position, don't do that. The believer is a steward. Nothing belongs to him. Everything that I have, God has given to me. It doesn't belong to me. I get to manage it. I get to make decisions. You say, well, yeah, I went to school. I paid a lot of money. I'm still paying on those loans. I, well, wait a minute, okay. Who, who, who? Who decided that you were going to be born in the United States? Well, come here. Who gave you the brains? Who gave you the health? Everything I possess belongs to the Lord. And I'm to use it for His glory. We dare not confuse complacency with contentment. Complacency describes a person having no incentive, desire, or motivation to provide responsibly for themselves or anybody else. It's whatever. Contentment indicates a person who's grateful and satisfied with what he has, never complaining or begrudging, not worshiping or living for it, while being a good steward to manage the increase, if possible. There's a big difference. Jesus himself taught contentment and lending by merciful, loving compassion. Give to everyone who asks of you, he said in Luke 6.30. So there's to be compassion as God leads and directs you. Luke 6.34 says, And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? So there will be times in my life when as God moves me on that I'm able to help somebody 
And God would have me not even to require them to pay it. God would just want me to help them. God will direct me, not the person. So I have to be a steward. The emphatic principle is proper attitude and perspective towards money and possessions to be used and not worshipped. I think the parable of the Good Samaritan, when we studied that in depth in chapter 10, is a classic example. He paid for that guy, took him to the inn, bandaged him up, put him on his donkey. And then he says, listen, i got to go on a journey. I'm going to come back on the way back. If there's more, I'll flip the bill. Wow. We're not to be anxious about the things of life. That's what the Gentiles do, so we're to trust God. It's just good pleasure to give us the kingdom, he said in Luke 12, 32. How much more is he going to take care of us? If we're diligent to work, to get prepared for life, and to look at those things. Peter puts it this way. See, we have left all to follow you. This is right after that. And so Jesus said to them, Peter and the rest of the disciples, Surely, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wives or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more In this present time and in the age to come, eternal life. Luke 18, 28-30. God will be a debtor to no one, ladies and gentlemen. If you've been walking with God for a lot of years, though you cannot know for sure which way you would have gone and what you would have done, you know that you wouldn't have done as well as you have with the Lord. Automatically, the first weekend I was saved, I came back from partying in Santa Barbara. The next weekend I was in a Bible study. The first weekend, I saved so much money. I didn't go out and buy my case of course. I didn't end up getting in a fight and tearing my clothes up. I didn't have my car smashed up. I was wealthy that weekend. The minute I got born again, I save a nerdy, an easy 30 to 40 percent. Automatically. And then I'm here pinching a penny to give to God, Lincoln's eyeball bulge out. Automatically, when you're born again, ladies and gentlemen, you are financially ahead. Because now you're not stupid. Simple. Real simple. There's nothing spiritual about being poor. Though some people think they're spiritual because they're poor and have nothing while all along coveting what other people's have. So it can happen on the poor side too. Okay? And rich side. True spirituality is marked by our attitude towards things as we've said. Do I merely possess things or do they possess me? Uh, Wherever my treasure is, my heart's going to be there. And if I'm covetous rather than content, then nothing's ever going to satisfy me. Am I trusting in my riches instead of God? However small, however large, then I'm really in poverty of spirit. I'm really poor. Paul put it this way, Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I speak in regards to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be a base and I know how to abound. Every word and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. I can eat beans, rice, 
and tortillas all the time. It doesn't matter to me. I'll throw some meat in there sometime. That's okay. It doesn't make any difference to me. It's amazing how... And do you realize how good God is? All these rich people, the, the meat and the steak and all this and everything, they're the ones that are in the ball sick. In Mexico, they have what they call verdolagas. They grow wild all over. It's a weed. It's one of the richest things you can eat. The cactus. All the natural things. They don't give you cholesterol. They don't give you heart attacks. The poor are lusting over the stake of the rich. And the rich are getting heart attacks because of that. And God's looking out for you and you're healthier. Is that a joke or what? Corn tortillas. <laughs> hmm. How do I give and lend to others? Is it only to those who give to me, those that I like, those that I want to impress and influence? God help me. The motive has to be agape love. God looks at my heart, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And that beam of seed, he'll reward me according to my motive. Jesus put it this way. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put in your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. It's called sowing and reaping. What is your attitude towards giving to God? Paul directed the churches to um, receive an offering one day a week on Sunday in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. As God has prospered you. Real simple. We do that, that's our budget, that's our means, and that's where we live. And God has grace. I want to commend you as a body for the last 34 years. Uh, we never pressure you for money. We didn't have no cookie sales when we did the gym or the church or anything else. And by the time we got through with the gym, it was paid cash. I don't know how it happened. But we focus on telling you what God wants to do for you. We focus on teaching the word of God to you so you can defend yourself. And we leave the finances up to God. We try to do it as nonchalant as possible. One of the greatest passages regarding the grace of God is um, in giving the Second Corinthians 8, 1 through 8, where Paul uses the Macedonians who were in poverty financially. And Paul wasn't even going to take money from them for the poor saints. And they said, no, 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 what do you mean? And he says he gave out of their poverty liberally. And he uses that to rebuke the Corinthians who had boasted a year ago to give. And then he tests the love of the Corinthians by the Macedonians. And he uses the poverty that Jesus went through being rich. He became poor for us that we might be made rich in verses 8 and 9 of that same chapter of 2 Corinthians 8. And he nails the Corinthians. Paul gives important principles for our giving. In 1 Corinthians 8, 12 through 15. And 9, 6 through 11. Listen to some of these. First, there's to be a willing mind to be acceptable according to what one has and not according to what, what one does not have. 1 Corinthians 8, 12. So God doesn't want you to give from what you don't have. But he wants you to give from what you do have. Straight across the board. No one's excluded. All are to be involved. No one's to be at ease. No one's to be burdened over it. In 1 Corinthians 8, 13 through 15. And he illustrates it by the gathering of manna. Those that wanted to gather more had brought it overnight, right? So he emphasizes equality when it comes to our giving to God. As God has blessed us. 
We already gave the principle of the two mites of the widow. She gave of what it cost to live. The risk, what they gave, was of their abundance. It didn't cost them anything. So God looks at not only how much, but what and how. God's spiritual principles also are not to be used to motivate people carnally. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And there are Christians and churches and radio programs and TV who will say, Listen, if you give one, God will give you ten. That's a lie. That's carnal people motivating carnal people to get carnal money. It's working people. It's wrong. Also, each one is to be giving as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly or of a necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful means hilarious. Please, if you cannot give hilariously, don't pollute our offering. Please. God will take care of us. Second Corinthians 9, 7. Now many people point to Ananias and Sapphira and say, well, look at God killed Ananias and Sapphira. Well, not because they didn't give it all, but because they said they gave it all. And they lied to the Holy Spirit. Read it. Acts 5, 1 through 6. The faithfulness of God, listen, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Second Corinthians 9, 8 and 9. The word there, sufficiency, is a stoic word, which means that you are a steward, a good steward. So what you have, you're frugal, you invest, you keep something for a rainy day, and you're always benevolent helping somebody, and no one ever has to take care of you. Wow. That's the word he uses for the Corinthians. The focus is managing your own money. You're accountable. Let me finish with a doxology in that section of giving in 2 Corinthians 9, 10 and 11. Um, Paul says, Now may he who supplies seed to the store and bread for food supply and multiply the seed to you have sown and increased the fruit of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through, through us to God. So may God continue to supply your need and may you continue to be a good steward and you may be continually obedient to God and to be compassionate and God will not, not rip you off. He will be faithful. Wow. I guarantee you that the people that have the most financial problems, and I'm not talking about where you get laid off or you go through a difficult, but just straight across. If you, those that have financial problems are people who never give to God anything. And the church is like Vegas. Vegas is supported by the poor people. <laughs> it's made rich by the poor people, not by the high rollers. The church is the same way, ladies and gentlemen. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. I've been in the ministry for 42 years, more than that, since I was born again in 73. <laughs> and by the way, I never look at your tithe. I never look at the tithe. I, I don't know what you give. It's none of my business. Luke reveals a contrast here between 
unspirituality and true spirituality by the words treasure, covetous, in contrast to lend and give. Great lessons for us as Christians. So here is what Luke taught. Luke reveals a contrast of social inner attitude of persons. That's where it begins. By the words lowly and mighty. Are you lowly or do you think you're mighty? That's where it begins. Luke reveals the contrast between the economic positions of persons by the words poor and rich. What do you consider yourself? Is it just material or is it spiritual? And Luke reveals the contrast between unspirituality and true spirituality by the word treasure and covetous in contrast to lend and give. Are you just a taker? Or are you a giver? We at Pasadena are givers. We give. We receive an offering from the body. We take no money from anybody else. We don't take offerings where we go. We don't take offerings at concerts. It's more blessed to give than to receive. No one can charge Calvary Chapel Pasadena. I commend you as a body. Absolutely commend you as your pastor. Lord, thank you for your love and goodness. We love you. We thank you for your grace over our life. And Lord, we pray for anyone who might be here who doesn't know you. You will speak to their hearts. You might think it's strange that I give you an altar call on speaking about money. But the bottom line is he's talking about spiritual wealth. <laughs> you are in poverty of spirit if you don't know Jesus Christ. Yet he gives you the invitation to be wealthy if you believe Jesus is God who became man and died for your sins and rose from the dead. If you believe this, you can call upon him. He will forgive you. He will make you a son or a daughter and give to you eternal life. It comes through a prayer of repentance. Jesus says, if you confess me before man, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me, I will deny you. It's a choice of every person who hears the gospel. Maybe you're over the internet, you don't know Jesus Christ, maybe you're here. If you want to be born again, this is your prayer to him, not to us. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.